Good, good morning, everyone. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you always to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. I never get tired of saying that because it is my favorite auditorium in Manhattan. So. Today's program is presented in conjunction with our major exhibition, World War I, Beyond the Trenches, which is on view through September 3rd. If you haven't seen it yet, um, please come back, especially if you're local, but even if you're not, come back. It is a spectacular art exhibition with historical context, and the paintings in that exhibition are just so, so powerful and beautiful. Um, I just encourage you all to go. And today's program, Churchill, America, and the Great War, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for all his wonderful support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I also want to thank the board member, our board members, and all our Chairman's Council members with us today for all their great work and support. Let's give them a big hand. And I uh, also want to thank um, Alan Luxemburg, um, the head of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, which has d helped develop this program with us and partnered with us. And um, let's give Alan Luxemburg, he's going to be up in a minute, and let's give him a big hand, too. Thank you. So the program today will last an hour and a half. It includes a, a Q&A, and you are given cards and pencils. You'll be, our, our staff is walking back and forth through the aisles if you haven't received a card yet, and then a little later in the program, they will be picking up the cards. And now I just ask if you have a cell phone or a beeper that you turn it off for the duration of the program. And now I'd like to introduce Alan Luxemburg. He is, as I said, the, the head, the president of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and which is based in Philadelphia. The FPRI's mission is to bring the insights of scholarship to bear on the development of policies that advance U.S. national interests. The Institute has been ranked as the number one think tank in the country with a budget of under five million. Let's please welcome Alan Luxemburg. Thank you. Well, on behalf of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, I would also like to welcome you and to thank the uh, New York Historical Society for hosting uh, today's event. It is always an honor to be at the New York Historical Society, for it is the premier venue for public talks on history in Manhattan. Uh, the Foreign Policy Institute, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, was founded on the premise that a nation should think before it acts. That was in... <laughs> That was in 1955, but uh, it was good advice then, and it's good advice today. Our mission is to bring the insights of scholarship to bear on the foreign policy challenges facing the United States. 
We do this uh, through a geopolitical perspective, which is to say we look at contemporary international affairs through the lens of history, geography, and culture, or as one of my colleagues likes to say, we study the realities and mentalities of the localities. Uh, one of the best things we do is to recruit young scholars and prepare them for a career in academia or public service. And one of the best examples of that is today's speaker, John Maurer. John got his start at FPRI in the 1970s as a pre-doctoral fellow. While he was getting his PhD from the Fletcher School, he became a senior fellow and then editor of our journal, Orbis. He has spent the last uh, 25 years at the U.S. Naval War College, where he is now the Alfred Thayer Mahan Professor of Sea Power and Grand Strategy. He spent eight of those years as chairman of the strategy department. He has served on the uh, Secretary of the Navy's Naval History Advisory Committee. He is the author of several books on war and diplomacy. And he has received two civilian service awards from the uh, US Navy. Um, John, uh, we take great pride in John's accomplishments, but being a nonprofit, we also take all credit for his accomplishments. <laughs> anyway, uh, join me in welcoming John Maurer. I want to start off by thanking the New York Historical Society, Dale and her wonderful team of Kate and Alex and Hannah for all the work they do. It's amazing the programs that they put on. And this year being the 100th anniversary of the United States entry into the First World War, they have uh, given emphasis in their programs to mark that 100th anniversary. And I think it's important to remember the 100th anniversary of the First World War because the First World War is often overlooked in American history. It's the Revolution, the Civil War, fast forward to World War II Vietnam down to our own day. And so the First World War, I think, often gets overlooked. And it should not be overlooked because it is a major turning point not only in American history, but in world history, because the United States emerges and plays a huge role on the world scene, helping to determine the outcome of the First World War. I also want to thank Alan and the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Alan and I go way back, many, many years now. Uh, I reflect back on, on those times with the Foreign Policy Research Institute. What a wonderful group of people they are. Their journal, Orbis, is a remarkable journal of providing good policy-oriented essays, studies, but also drawing upon history, as Alan said, to help illuminate the present and the future. So Alan and the Foreign Policy Research Institute does a terrific job of, as he said, trying to educate people, help people to think before they act. What, what a wonderful motto. What a wonderful motto. I, if only we could follow that. I mean, how much in our own lives do we do things unthinkingly? Well, of course, a great country like the United States that has such responsibilities on the world stage clearly, clearly 
we should follow that model. And as you know, there are so many bright, brilliant people in our country. So we have a lot of talent to draw upon to guide us in the years ahead. Well, this morning I'm going to talk about Winston Churchill, the United States, and the Great War, the First World War. And what I've done here is put up a portrait of Churchill from 1916, when he was 40 years old. 40 years old. So uh, in his young 40s at that, that time. It's a full-length portrait, and I've just blown up the uh, face uh, to look at it. As you can see, Churchill is melancholy here in this portrait. We're accustomed to thinking of Churchill from the Second World War and that scowl from the famous Karsh portrait that was taken in 1941. And we forget that Churchill, as a younger man, as a younger man, also held high responsibility in wartime in the First World War. Indeed, to study the Second World War, to understand what happened in the Second World War, you have to study the First World War, because this was such a big experience, shaping the lives of so many people, including the leaders, like Winston Churchill, and as you'll see later in my talk, Franklin D. Roosevelt. This portrait was painted at a time, a time when Churchill was seen as a failure, when he thought that his political career might be at an end, that he would no longer have a major role to play in the British government. This portrait, by the way, was one that uh, was uh, prominent in Churchill's home during his lifetime. It is one of his favorite portraits of himself. So keep that in mind. We're looking at a time, a time of great tragedy, where the world is being convulsed in a great war. All the progressive optimism of the 19th century that somehow war would be banished, or at least major war between the great powers, would no longer occur. Because people had somehow grown up and understood that war, like dueling, was something that we should put behind us. It's not behavior that should be rewarded. Well, the First World War showed that all that optimism of the 19th century just came crashing down. Well, this morning what I want to do is link together Churchill with the United States and the United States' role in the First World War to link together his story with that of the United States. Well, Churchill was half American. His grandfather was Leonard Jerome of New York, famous financier during the 19th century. Uh, won and lost several fortunes. He, at times, he was one of the wealthiest men in the United States. During the American Civil War, he was part owner of the New York Times. He was also known for his great interest in racehorses, uh, something that his grandson, Winston, shared with him. Again, a prominent figure in New York society and in American history during the 19th century. His daughter, Jeanette Jerome, born in Brooklyn. Do I have any cheers here for Brooklyn? There we go. As you can see, a beautiful young woman. Uh, she, uh, her mother, two sisters, were in Europe. While in Europe, she fell in love with uh, a British aristocrat, Lord Randolph Churchill, married him, and their first son was Winston. 
She was 20 years old when Winston Churchill was born on November 30th, 1874. Uh, she went into labor prematurely, and so Winston was born in a palace, Blenheim Palace, not far from, from Oxford. So Churchill uh, has an American mother, and his father is from the British aristocracy, and he was born in a palace. Imagine that. Well, here we see another younger Winston Churchill. Here he is in 1900. He's 26 years old. Look at that baby face. Boy, baby face he looks like, but he has seen a lot of combat. In the 1890s, he was an observer in Cuba when the Cuban people rose up in revolt against the Spanish Empire. He was there as an observer and saw action in Cuba. He then saw action on the northwest frontier of India, modern-day Pakistan, up against the uh, Afghan border fighting against what today we call the Taliban. He also saw in 1898 combat in the Sudan, and then in 1900 in South Africa, in the Boer War that was going on. And in that war, he was a great, great hero. He was captured by the Boers and then escaped from uh, his prison camp. So here you see this 26-year-old man who has been involved in a great deal of combat, seen a great deal of combat, been shot at, came close to being killed, and has killed several men as well. So that baby face, that can be deceiving. Well, because he was a war hero from the Boer War, he was in popular demand. He ran for parliament, received uh, in the election of 1900 in Britain, won a seat in parliament, and then came to the United States to begin a speaking tour, a highly lucrative speaking tour, by the way. So in 1900, he was in a number of American and Canadian cities giving a talks, lectures, about his experience as a combat, as a soldier and journalist in the war in South Africa. And indeed, in 1900, he gave a talk at the Waldorf Astoria before a 1,000 people. And he was introduced by Mark Twain. Boy, wouldn't that be an evening to attend? <laughs> Mark Twain and Winston Churchill together on the same program? Boy, that's a wonderful program to attend. I wish we could recreate that uh, that, that evening. By the way, Mark Twain introduced him and, and said, I, I, I like this young man, but at the same time, I don't like his views. He's an imperialist. <laughs> I don't like empires. United States is embarking on an empire after the war with Spain. And Churchill's a nice man, but I don't like his views about empire. Well, anyway, Mark Twain gave a seal of approval, if you will, to Winston Churchill. Now, someone who wasn't uh, so taken initially with Winston Churchill was the governor of New York State, Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt uh, had been elected to be governor of New York. Uh, he then was on the ticket in the uh, 1900 election with William McKinley as vice president. Uh, he, here he is in, uh, in that period of time, portrait of Roosevelt. Well, as vice president-elect, uh, he met Winston Churchill up in Albany. Uh, Churchill was at a dinner. Well, Theodore Roosevelt didn't like Churchill at all. He was rude, he said, to his hostess. He forgot to thank his hostess as he was leaving the dinner. 
So Roosevelt had to go up to him and say, mind your manners. Go thank your hostess. And by the way, take that cigar out of your mouth when you do it. You can imagine Theodore Roosevelt chastising Churchill, take that cigar out of your mouth as you go up to your hostess. Well, first impressions, uh, Churchill often didn't make good first impressions. Uh, he didn't make a good first impression on Theodore Roosevelt. But Roosevelt would change his tune, as you will shortly see. Again, isn't that remarkable that Churchill, on this tour of the US, is meeting two such distinguished Americans as Mark Twain and Theodore Roosevelt, who, as you know, held very different views about the role that the United States should play on the world stage. Well, fast forward now to 1914 and the outbreak of the Great War that takes place in Europe in August of 1914. Here we see the front page of the Daily Mail on August 5th. Again, Britain declares war on Germany. Face to face, the British and German fleets, they're going to clash. All eyes are on the North Sea. When the war broke out, it was anticipated there would be a big battle between the fleets of Germany and of Britain. That didn't happen, by the way. It took two years before that happened, and when it did happen at the Battle of Jutland in 1916, it was indecisive. Now, why do I highlight the naval side? Because in 1914, the first Lord of the Admiralty was Winston Churchill. When war broke out, he was 39 years old. And here you see him in his uniform as first Lord with his medals that he has won from his combat service. He was the civilian head of the Royal Navy. The civilian head of the Royal Navy. So he is the member of the government in the British cabinet that's responsible for the naval security of Britain. And as you know, Britain was an empire spread around the globe, an empire upon which the sun never set. It is an empire that is linked together by big oceanic sea lines of communication. If the Royal Navy is defeated, then the British Empire will break apart. It is held together not only by language and custom, trade, economics, it's also held together by the strength of the Royal Navy. So Churchill had become First Lord of the Admiralty in 1911, three years before the outbreak of the war. And so his job was to prepare the Royal Navy for the First World War. He was energetic in this regard and tried to energize the Admiralty. He believed in 1911 when he went to the Admiralty that the British admirals, the Navy, well, they were too lackadaisical. They weren't aware of the danger, what he called the ever-present danger, of the German fleet just across the North Sea. He tried to inculcate in his staff and into the leadership of the Royal Navy and all the ranks of the Royal Navy that war could come at any moment. It could come suddenly and that the Royal Navy had to be prepared. And in particular, in particular, what Churchill was worried about was that the war could begin with a German surprise attack on the British fleet, that the British fleet at harbor, at port, thinking itself at peace, could be attacked by German torpedo boats, and the Royal Navy could be defeated on the first day by this German surprise attack. Now, we Americans can understand that danger. Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941, how the American battle fleet based in Hawaii at Pearl Harbor was attacked suddenly, without warning, and 
suffered heavy casualties and losses of ships. Well, Churchill was worried about that Pearl Harbor scenario, if you will. He wanted to make sure that the Royal Navy was not caught by surprise. And so as the crisis, the diplomatic crisis that was leading to war in 1914 was occurring, what was foremost in Churchill's mind was to make sure that the Royal Navy was not caught by surprise by the Germans. By the way, the German naval staff wanted to carry out a surprise attack on the British fleet, but they couldn't find the British fleet. They didn't know where it was. And so as a consequence, Churchill, through his precaution in mobilizing the fleet, deploying it secretly to its war station off the coast of Scotland, that the Germans weren't able to carry out that surprise attack. The king's ships were at sea, Churchill would later write. The Royal Navy was able to escape a disaster at the beginning of the war. And the Royal Navy's superior strength to the German fleet would be able to keep the German battle fleet in check in the North Sea. Uh, Churchill, by the way, was quite an innovator, bringing in a new generation of British warships, submarines, uh, big battleships, and also aircraft. More on that in a moment. Well, as the war began, you had war fighting on the Western Front in France, the Eastern Front, the Russian Front. The Royal Navy then put in place a blockade. As you can see, Britain's geographical position. Alan talked about this, how important geography is. If you want to understand strategy, you have to look at geography. Well, the British Isles, they stand athwart all of Germany's major sea lanes to the outer world. So the British instituted a blockade to try to prevent Germany from getting raw materials, foodstuffs from that wider world. At the same time, the Royal Navy wants to protect its sea lanes so that it can bring into the United Kingdom and into France, into their allies, uh, foodstuffs and raw materials to support war industries. This blockade is effective, very effective during the First World War. Germany's economy contracts by about 15% during the war. And that's due in large part to Germany's inability to trade with a wider world. So this blockade has an important impact, a strategic effect, as we would say, on Germany's ability to wage war. In particular, as the war goes on, Germany's agriculture, and in Central Europe, wider Central Europe, um, the problem is foodstuffs. And as a consequence, the German people get hungrier and hungrier as the war goes on. So the blockade has an important impact on German morale as well as on Germany's ability to fight war. Well, Theodore Roosevelt, when he heard about Churchill and what he had done as First Lord of the Admiralty at the beginning of the war, he wrote to one of his British friends, Arthur Lee, and said, I never liked that Churchill. But in view of what you tell me, again, admirable conduct and nerve. Again, that's a, a courage in mobilizing the fleet. If it comes to Arthur Lee's way, extend to him congratulations on his action. Theodore Roosevelt admired Churchill for the actions that he took at the beginning of the war. Now, Churchill right away understood how important U.S. opinion would be, because the ability to enforce the blockade against Germany depends upon getting neutrals, neutral states, to agree that there should be restrictions on German trade. 
And so Churchill, within a month of the war breaking out, gave an interview to American journalists that were published, the interview was published in the New York Times. And the headline is, Mr. Churchill on the war, democracy at stake. He's trying to appeal to American opinion. Again, this is within the first month of the war, the end of August 1914. And what is he trying to highlight? An ideological dimension here. That Germany is not a democracy. Imperial Germany is run by what he calls a Prussian military aristocracy, Prussian militarism. And again, this Prussian militarism, the leaders, the rulers of Imperial Germany, they have these ambitions that are worldwide. It's not just Europe. If they win in Europe, they will have ambitions toward the New World, toward the Western Hemisphere. Again, we're at grips with Prussian militarism he tells the American journalists. He calls the Great War a collision, the Great Collision. And again, it's a fight between democracies and more authoritarian militaristic regimes. And again, he has some wonderful language here, rhetoric, where he says, how do I define this? Where the peoples own the government and not the government, the people. It resonates with Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address. Again, the American people should realize what is at stake. This war isn't just over there. It's something that's going to have an impact on Americans. Uh, he ends the interview by saying, you know I'm half American. <laughs> Again, knowing his audience, he wants to highlight those ties, those ties between England, Britain's leaders, and the United States. Well, behind the scenes, he's saying the same thing. What he's saying in public, he, he believes. And here's a photograph of the House of Commons uh, during the period of the First World War. During the Second World War, the House of Commons was bombed by the Germans and had to be rebuilt. And this is what it looked like during the era of the First World War. Churchill told one of his friends, uh, the journalist McCallum Scott, he said, this little place, this makes all the difference between Britain and Germany. And many people think democracy is a weakness when it comes to waging war. Churchill didn't think so. He said, it's a virtue of this place, a virtue, a virtue, that because Britain is a democracy, that despite Germany's brilliant efficiency, how brilliant and efficient they were is another matter, historians can debate, but it's going to lead them to final disaster. In other words, they might win battles, but they're going to lose the war. And it's because of this place that the British people control their destiny that democracy has built into it a sanity check, that the people are brought in to discuss these important topics of strategy, politics, war. And again, what wonderful language he gives to his friend. This little room is the shrine of the world's liberties. Again, what Churchill is saying publicly, he believes sincerely in his heart. Uh, Churchill is also committed to a complete victory over Imperial Germany. I love this quote. This comes from the end of 1914. He says, we have to win this war decisively, because if we don't, what will happen? The war won't be decisive. There'll be an uneasy truce. And then they might have to fight it over again with Germany, maybe under less favorable circumstances. And then again, I've highlighted here, perhaps alone. 1940. That's what happens. Britain's fighting Germany again, a more wicked Germany, the evil of Nazism. He's fighting them again. 
Again, under less favorable circumstances, 1940 is not a good time. Britain's major ally, France, has been defeated. Britain has to fight on alone. Churchill understands that if the job, as he would say, isn't done right this time, the result will be another war. Again, he's able to see into the future. He understands that what has to be done now to shape the future in a way that there isn't another war. One of the great tragedies of the Great War, the First World War, is that it sows the seeds for future wars. Well, in the United States, President Woodrow Wilson and uh, one of his uh, friends and, uh, in effect, his national security advisor, Edward House, they didn't have the position of national security advisor at that time, but Edward House was a close confidant uh, of uh, President Wilson. Wilson would send him on important diplomatic missions. His papers, Edward House's papers, he kept a diary, letters. They're at Yale University at the Sterling Library and there are archives there. And I've consulted those, those papers through the years. Well, Wilson and House, their view is different from that of Churchill. They would like to see a negotiated end to this war. Wilson wants to try to mediate this war to bring the war to an end by negotiation rather than military victory. He doesn't want to see the war prolonged. He wants to see the war ended. He wants to be a broker, as honest a broker as he can be, between the two sides, Germany, the central powers, and Britain, the allies, on the other side. Well, um, uh, Wilson continues as being President of the United States, the largest, most powerful neutral in the world, believes that the U.S. power can be used to help broker, help mediate a peace settlement. Well, Churchill's speeches, uh, that's 1914, there. Churchill's speeches, by the way, uh, well, they inflame German opinion. The Germans realize that in Churchill they have an enemy, a dogged, determined enemy. This is a photograph of Count Bernstoff, who is the... Um, German ambassador in Washington. And until we went to war in 1917, the German embassy is still working in Washington. Well, Edward House approaches Bernstoff and says, hey, we want to try to mediate, uh, somehow negotiate a peace between the two sides. And what House records in his diary is that Bernstoff says, hey, if Churchill's speeches, if what he's saying reflects the feeling of the British government, there's no point. There's no point in Germany trying to negotiate. They clearly, the British don't want to have negotiations if Churchill's view is the predominant view in Britain. Well, House then goes to his British friends and says, I'm going to warn you that Churchill's remarks can hurt the prospect of a negotiated peace. Again, Churchill is an important figure already in 1914. Anyway, House tells this to a major British government figure, Lord Robert Cecil, who was in charge of managing the blockade of Germany during the First World War. Well, anyway, when he told this to Cecil, House recorded in his diary that this was uh, Cecil's remarks. <laughs> Modesty forbids me from reading this out. Again, what does this show? That among his colleagues in the British government, Churchill is seen as sometimes as being over the top and not being able to be controlled. 
Well, again, Churchill is dogged in his determination to bring about the decisive defeat of Germany because he believes that's the only way there could be a lasting peace. Well, Churchill looks, though, he wants to defeat Germany. But how do you defeat Germany? What strategy should you pursue? Well, the generals all see the Western Front in France as being the decisive, the main theater of the war. And we have these images of the First World War, that lunar landscape. Here you see a poor French soldier being hit as he's charging across no man's land. Again, the trenches of the Western Front and just how difficult it is to win on this type of front where both sides are entrenched. And of course, if the French are attacking, well, then the Germans counterattack back and forth, back and forth. Little ground being gained on either side, but immense casualties. Already by the end of 1914, Churchill knows that this is not the way to win the war. That these battles of attrition on the Western Front will only result in high casualties. And he says, wow, if we have to fight the war like this, we might win, but we're going to look like we lost in that war. Well, the British generals, their view is there has to be built up a big British army to attack on the Western Front in France, to drive the German armies out of France and out of Belgium. That's the way to win the war. Churchill's view, however, and he writes a, a memo to the British Prime Minister at the time, at the end of 1914, he says, there's got to be alternatives to sending our armies, and again, look at this graphic phrase, to chew barbed wire in Flanders, that section of the front on the Western Front where the British armies are. Well, what are the alternatives for Churchill? Well, there's Germany, Germany's ally, Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, the Central Powers. You have the Western Front, the Eastern Front, the Russians fighting the Ottoman Empire in the Caucasus, the Middle East. What can you do to break these stalemates on these fronts? Well, Churchill believes that you can leverage Britain's naval superiority to carry out an offensive in the Middle East to seize Istanbul and defeat quickly the Ottoman Empire. And that will set the stage for further offensives against Austria-Hungary and eventually against Germany. The idea is that you defeat Germany's allies first before taking on Germany. That you, Germany becomes the last enemy to be taken down after British armies have been built up and trained and Germany has its allies ripped away from it. This is an alternative strategy that Churchill is putting together for winning the First World War. Here's a look of the Dardanelles from outer space. Off to the right is the Aegean. You can see Gallipoli Peninsula, the ideas, naval ground assault toward the Dardanelles, taking Gallipoli, winning there, and then driving on to Istanbul. By doing that, you'll defeat the Ottoman Empire and defeat one of Germany's major allies. That's the thinking here. Isn't this a wonderful projection, by the way? I mean, when you look at this, it's a whole different way of looking at the world. Well, on um, uh, March 18th, the British launch a big offensive with warships to try to break through in the Dardanelles. The result, though, is a failure. Mines in the Dardanelles stop this British naval offensive. They're not able to break through. Well, if the Navy can't do it, send in the Army. So on April 25th, 1915, about a month later, armies are landed on the Gallipoli Peninsula. Uh, of course, that's a big day in Australian and New Zealand history. 
because the Aussies, New Zealand, the Kiwis are landing there at Gallipoli. What's the result? Stalemate. In August, there's another big offensive to try to break through. Again, failure. The Western Front is being duplicated here on the Gallipoli Peninsula. Trenches, not able to break through. The campaign is a failure. Churchill's gamble, his desire to defeat the Ottoman Empire, well, it fails. Well, who's held responsible for this? Well, the whole British government agreed that this was a good idea. But when things go sour, what do you do? Who can we find to blame? I'm not going to look in the mirror. I'm going to find somebody else. Well, Churchill is the one to be blamed. And so in May 1915, there's a political crisis that takes place in Britain. And one of his friends, a British press magnate, Lord Riddle, goes to the Admiral to see him, and he looks worn and harassed. I love this photograph because you can see the image of him uh, over there, the back of Churchill's uh, uh, head there. Well, Lord Riddle keeps a diary. It's in the British Library uh, in London. I've consulted with that, and so these quotations are coming from that diary. Uh, uh, he greeted me warmly, but he said, I'm, I'm going to be done in. I'm finished politically. I'm being blamed for these failures. Lord Riddle said, you're only 40 years old. You have your whole life ahead of you. You're not a failure. Churchill, nonetheless, thought he was a failure, that he's finished. And then he says, I'm finished for what I really care about, to bring about the defeat of Germany. That's what he tells Lord Riddle. Well, in a government shakeup, Churchill is thrown out of the Admiralty. He's replaced. Uh, Lord uh, Winston Churchill's wife, Clementine Churchill, trying to defend her husband, wrote to the prime minister to prevent that from happening. And so this comes from her letter to the prime minister at the time, Asquith, saying, Winston, you know, he has his faults. Winston's colleagues would say, yeah, and they're big ones. But he has a supreme quality that very few of your colleagues, other British politicians, have. And what is that? Well, the power, the imagination. I love this, imagination. Good leaders have to be imaginative and the deadliness to fight Germany. That's what she writes in defense of her husband. By the way, the prime minister asked with when he gets this letter, he's dismissive. He says, this is the letter of a maniac. That's so unfair. So unfair. Well, anyway, beautiful Clementine Churchill writing to defend her husband doesn't work. Um, again, Churchill is blamed. At the end of 1915, Churchill is so fed up with the British government that he goes into what we could call the wilderness. He resigns from the government. And what is the wilderness? The Western Front. He had been an officer, fought in these campaigns that I mentioned. Well, he was a reserve officer, and he decided to go back to the army. And he went to the Western Front. From January to May 1916, he served as the commander of a battalion, a lieutenant colonel, on the Western Front. Imagine that. Here's someone who's at the top of political power, uh, the equivalent of a secretary of defense by being first lord of the admiralty. He now is there in the trenches with his men of his regiment, serving on the Western Front. By the way, in grave danger, could have been killed on a number of occasions. Here he is, colonel of his regiment, surrounded by the officers around him. You can see that very somber, serious, depressed-looking face that he's looking out. Some of the officers are more happy. 
but he, he clearly, this is not where he wants to be. By the way, Churchill was a very good commander of his battalion. At first, his men thought, do we want to have a politician, a failed politician, be our commander? There were big doubts about that. Because, uh, I mean, you read the papers of a politician, you know, when we say the word politician, you know, most of us go, ooh. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's what his men, was thinking. men were thinking. But, but what happened was they came to like him because he shared their dangers. He would go out in the no man's land on raids, came close to being killed on several occasions. He was known as being lenient to his men when uh, some of his soldiers would uh, do some things that uh, the officers didn't approve of. When it came up to Churchill, he generally went for the most lenient sentence. Many of his officers thought he was too lenient. But nonetheless, his men and officers came to like him a great deal. He was a very good commander of his unit. Well, Churchill, here he is. This is a painting done from this time. He's wearing a French helmet here. One of the things he wrote to his wife, Clementine, and they have a wonderful correspondence back and forth while he is at the front. He says, you live calmly on the brink of an abyss. Shells are going off around you. Uh, you don't control your destiny in some way. Well, Churchill at this time also took up painting. There's a wonderful, wonderful article he wrote called Painting as a Pastime that I recommend to you. And he's quite good as a painter. This is a painting that he did of the Western Front. As you can see, shells going off in the background, and here's soldiers running to get cover, and you can see the damaged buildings of a village. Here's his headquarters he did a painting of, reading the newspaper, guards on duty. A quiet time, but again, damaged village. Here's another painting he did of soldiers in London who have been on leave going back to the front. Again, an amateur artist, but quite professional. A uh, wonderful, wonderful painter. Well, let me go over to the American side of the story. So far, I've been talking about Churchill. Well, as I said, Wilson wanted to keep the U.S. out of the war. He wanted to negotiate a settlement between the warring sides, but instead the U.S. got into war. Now, in 1916, it was a presidential election, and Wilson was seen as the peace candidate. As you can see here, he kept us out of war. That was the big... Uh, campaign cry of Woodrow Wilson. And here's a button from his time. Peace in America, God bless Wilson, war in Europe. Somehow he has protected the United States from going into war. It was a very narrow election. Uh, he, he won by a narrow margin. In fact, Wilson thought he was going to lose to the Republicans. Uh, California, typically a Republican state. Ohio, typically a Republican state, went for the Democrats in this election and gave Wilson a narrow, a narrow victory uh, in 1916. Well, he wanted to keep the U.S. out of war. He's the peace candidate. Well, as we like to say today, the enemy gets a vote. We don't get to completely determine our destiny. Our destiny comes about how? By interacting with other people all the time. We don't control completely our lives. Our lives are caught up with everyone else that we interact with, some people we can't see far away. Well, uh, in this case here, uh, Germany has a big say in whether the U.S. will stay at peace or not. And hence, the Germans are voting for what? War with the United States. The blockade of Germany 
the failure of Germany's battleships to be able to beat the Royal Navy, the hunger blockade in Germany, and that's what it's called, the hunger blockade. Well, how can Germany get back? Well, the German admirals, and this is Reinhard Scheer, admiral who was command of the German battle fleet, he says, there's only one way to win this war, and that's to crush the British economic life. And how do you do it? By submarines, by the U-boats, by a big offensive against British commerce. Here's a postage stamp for the First World War. What do you see on it? Big letters. God punish England for that blockade. And what do you see? How is Germany going to punish England? How is God going to punish England? It's going to be by submarines going out from port, dawn patrol, sunrise coming up, submarines being let loose against British commerce. That's how Germany will win the war, by using this weapon, the submarine. This will be the vengeance weapon to punish England. The Second World War, the vengeance weapons will not only be submarines, but also missiles that will be thrown at, at England in 44 and 45. Well, the chief of the German naval staff, Holzendorf, says to the Kaiser, if we let loose the submarines, he promises, he promises the Kaiser, not one American will come to Europe. They won't be able to come over there to take part in Europe. This is the wonder weapon that will be decisive in defeating Britain and hence defeating, um, uh, winning the First World War for Germany. Even if America declares war, it doesn't matter. They won't be able to cross the Atlantic. The Kaiser, his generals, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, they agree with the admirals. And so on January 9th, 1917, in a big conference, the Kaiser says he agrees. Embark on submarine warfare, unrestricted, all-out submarine offensive, shooting at not just British flagships or French flagships, but neutral ships, including the United States. An all-out submarine offensive to begin on February 1st, 1917. Again, Wilson has just been elected in November. He's still not inaugurated for his second term. The German leadership has decided to provoke war with the U.S. They know that this will lead to a declaration of war with the United States. They know that by doing this all-out submarine offensive, the U.S. will come into the war. Wilson, the man of peace, they're going to force him into war. Well, initially, the submarine offensive does very well. And here's a painting by Willie Stauer, who is one of the Kaiser's favorite artists. And what do you see? A German submarine, its deck gun at the ready, about ready to sink an American ship. Again, the Kaiser loves this. What is he seeing? American ships going down. Well, Wilson, on April 2nd, 1917, goes before a joint session of Congress and asks for a declaration of war. The Congress, four days later, on April 6th, goes along and declares war. In his speech to the Congress, Wilson says that the German submarine campaign is warfare against mankind. Wilson also uses the rhetoric of democracies being at war, very Churchillian, that this is a war, a war that the U.S. didn't want, but now was being forced upon it, that the German military regime was out of control, and that the U.S. had to step in to defeat Germany in this. And the U.S. sends over warships, eventually a large army as well, that plays a critical role first in defeating the German submarine campaign, 
but also in moving over a large American army to France. Now, as it turns out, our commander of American naval forces in European waters is Admiral Sims, Admiral William Sims. He was president of the Naval War College, where I teach in Newport, Rhode Island, right before the war and right after the First World War. And he wrote a best-selling Pulitzer Prize-winning book called The Victory at Sea, after the First World War, describing his experiences in the First World War. Well, uh, in the Library of Congress down in Washington, you can find his letters. And here is a letter to his uh, wife. And uh, what does he have to say in it? Well, I want to highlight that passage. You can all read it, right? <laughs> OK, uh, let, let me help. Last night, I dined with Lady Randolph Churchill. Sims had gone over to uh, Europe in uh, April 1917. And so in London, he is meeting with Lady Randolph Churchill. And that's what Churchill's mother looks like in 1917. We have this photograph of her from 1917. So Sims, our admiral, goes to her house for dinner and meets Winston Churchill. And I got to meet her son, who was formerly First Lord of the Admiralty. We had a long and interesting talk. He says the Allies, Britain, France, Russia, would be beaten if America had not come in. Again, Churchill, from the beginning of the war, understands how, the US is, how important the U.S. is in determining the outcome of this war. And now he is telling our top admiral in Europe that the U.S. is going to be the decisive weight in defeating Germany. At the same time, around the same time that he's having dinner with Sims, Churchill is coming out of the wilderness. He had served for five months on the Western Front. He then came back to Britain, hoping to get back in the government. Churchill knew what he most wanted to be was a politician, to be in a leadership position in government to guide Britain's destiny. But when he came back to Britain, he found that nobody wanted him in government. They still blamed him for the Dardanelles and other failures earlier in the war. Well, the person who brings him out of the wilderness is David Lloyd George. Lloyd George becomes prime minister at the end of 1916. Today, he's not as well remembered, but he ought to be. He is an incredible personality. He is the driving force in many ways. In many ways, he's the Churchill of the First World War. He's the one that is able to reach out to the British people. He, he's very much a common man, born uh, in Wales, not English, a Welshman. Uh, uh, speaks fluently the Welsh tongue, is proud of his Welsh heritage, again, coming from uh, a, a very much common background, uh, a small-town lawyer who did well in politics by standing up for the underdogs, for the tenants against the big landlords. Well, here he is as prime minister, and uh, he's a remarkable, remarkable individual. He's also a great admirer of Churchill. Now, Lloyd George, in an interview with an American journalist, highlighted that this war had to be won, just as Churchill had done. And he said, it must be a fight to the finish, to a knockout. Germany has to be knocked out. So he's determined to defeat Germany. Well, Churchill and Lloyd George had become political allies, and I would almost say, among politicians, friends. Of course, that's hard if you're a politician, I guess, to have friends. But as much as politicians can have friends, they were friends. In fact, they were referred to as the heavenly twins. 
Again, two very different people. Lloyd George is a generation older. Again, coming from a common background, sort of a common person's background. Small town lawyer. Uh, doesn't go to Oxford or Cambridge, the elite universities that, uh, that uh, uh, typically are leaders of Britain at this time. Uh, and here's uh, 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 someone a generation younger who had been born in a palace, uh, the English aristocracy. Despite their differences in class, uh, national background, nonetheless, they admire each other a great deal. And Lloyd George understands that Churchill has the talent and has to be brought back into government. Now, both of them also had uh, negative views about them. Uh, one British politician by the name of Stanley Baldwin, who would become prime minister in the interwar period, said about Lloyd George that he was a cad. Meanwhile, Winston Churchill was born again in that palace as a gentleman, but he never remembered it. In other words, th these two are shady politicians to many people on the conservative side of the political spectrum. So uh, uh, again, keep this in mind, because when Lloyd George wants to bring Churchill back into the government to be a colleague, one of Lloyd George's uh, fellow politicians says, Churchill's a dangerously ambitious man. By the way, the Sunday Times of London, when there's rumors about that Churchill's going to be brought back in the government in 1917, this is what the, the, the Sunday Times has to say. His record, again, beyond all argument or doubt, Churchill's record, is he doesn't possess those qualities of what? Balance judgment. He doesn't have, he's, doesn't have balance and good sense of judgment. He's not farsighted. This is the editorial opinion to Lloyd George. It's a shot across his bow. Don't bring this man back into power. Keep him out. Well, Lloyd George says to Lord Riddle, again, I've looked through his diaries and says, Lloyd George says, hey, there's a strong feeling among, against bringing him back in, Churchill back in from the Tories. Here's Churchill giving a speech, by the way, to uh, armaments workers, and there's his wife, Clementine Churchill, next to him. I just love that hat. Uh, uh, Lord Riddle said back to Lloyd George, hey, I, 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 there's no doubt that Winston is hated by the upper and government but he's popular with the people. And in a war in which we have to mobilize public opinion to support it, especially given all the losses that Britain is suffering in this war, that that's an important attribute. And Lloyd George agreed with that. Lloyd George decided he was going to bring Churchill back. In one of Churchill's speeches, uh, he said, how's Britain going to win this war? They're going to win the war with something that begins with A. And what is it? Airplanes in America. Again, he's highlighting to the British people how important the United States' role is going to be, but also how important technology is going to be in winning this war. Well, Lloyd George brings back Winston because he admires what Churchill is saying. He wants to have Churchill as a colleague. And so he makes Churchill, front and center there, the Minister of Munitions. This is an important role. Churchill is in charge of mobilizing the British economy to produce weapons for the British Air Force and the British Army to fight against Germany. Of course, Churchill being Churchill, he doesn't sit behind a desk in a government office. He's off to visit the armaments workers, people working in the factories to produce those weapons. And as you can see by who he's surrounded by, it's overwhelmingly women. One reason why you get votes for women, one consequence of the First World War, is because women played a big role in the war effort working in the factories, hard labor, 
working in the factories to produce the weapons needed by the army to fight. And again, look at that Churchill with the puckish grin as he's walking with the workers, giving speeches to them, supervising the construction of weapons, of artillery tubes, large amounts of shell, ammunition that you need, building tanks. Churchill was into the technology of new weapons of war, technology of tanks, to break the stalemate on the Western Front, to break through those trenches, that lunar landscape. Also, aircraft, air superiority is needed to win wars on the ground. Air is connected to the ground. Churchill himself loved to fly, wanted to be a pilot, wasn't very good at it. His wife said, stop it, you'll get yourself killed. But anyway, every opportunity he could to fly, he did. And he flew over to France at one point, across the channel, and the plane started to go, and he thought, whoops, death is staring me in the face. But as it turned out, didn't crash, went on his way. Lord Riddle then said to him, what, what, what was that experience like, having a crash? Were you afraid of death? Churchill said, no, I love life, but I don't fear death. That's one thing about Churchill that's remarkable, is just how courageous an individual he is. You know, that word courage we tend not to use. You know, we don't associate it with our leaders sometimes. Uh, I'm not making a political statement. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, Churchill, what he has in abundance is courage. Well, again, aircraft, well, that's not the view of the generals. They want infantrymen to fight on the Western Front to break through. Haig, Field Marshal Haig, the commander of the British armies on the Western Front. Churchill said there's no doubt if Haig had to choose between what? 50,000 men for the infantry or 50,000 men for the Air Force? What would he choose? He would choose 50,000 men for the infantry. Churchill was constantly butting heads with the Army High Command. He wants them to have tanks. He wants them to have air superiority. And they're saying, no, infantrymen, infantrymen, artillery. Churchill has a different view for how this war should be waged. He wants to harness leverage technology to gain advantage on the battlefield, not just keep hitting the Germans in the trenches. Well, on July 4th, 1918, Churchill is a guest speaker at a, a, a major rally being held in London. Again, it's the time of our uh, 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 celebrating the anniversary of American independence. Again, here in London, we're celebrating, they're celebrating American independence from Britain. Churchill was the guest speaker. Right next to him is Admiral Sims. And in this speech, Churchill lays out what's at stake again. And I, want, I just want to highlight it again quickly. What he sees is he tells his audience of Americans as well as Britons who are in London at this time. And again, this gets published as a pamphlet that he calls this a war between Christian civilization and scientific barbarism. And I, I, again, look at this rhetoric here. It's a struggle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. What else? Germany must be beaten. Germany must know that she is beaten. Germany must feel that she is beaten. Really tough rhetoric. Now, at the same time, going over to Europe was this young man, Franklin D. Roosevelt. He was Woodrow Wilson's assistant secretary of the Navy, a civilian, high-level civilian in the U.S. Navy Department. He went off to Europe to see for himself what the conditions were like for the U.S. naval units, but also what the Western Front was like. And at the end of July, he was asked to give a speech, a short talk, impromptu talk. And what he told his British hosts was, we are with you to the end. And that becomes quoted 
uh, a great deal in Britain at this time. Well, here's Roosevelt going off to the Western Front to see what's going on. He wrote back to colleagues, he said, no matter how well-informed you may well be, sitting behind your desks in Washington, you can only realize what's going on over here in Europe by seeing them face to face. Again, this is something that Roosevelt shares with Churchill. You've got to see things for yourself. You can't hide far away from realities. You've got to see those realities for himself. Now, while in London at the end of July at a dinner, uh, Roosevelt ran into <laughs> Churchill. And this is what he later said about Churchill. I've always disliked that Churchill. When I was in England in 1918, we were at a dinner, and he acted like a stinker. <laughs> He's the, one of the few men in public life who has been rude to me. Again, Churchill not making good first impressions with the Roosevelts, both Theodore and with Franklin. But of course, in the Second World War, Franklin D. Roosevelt and Winston Churchill are two architects of victory. Their closeness as leaders helps determine the outcome of the war and the defeat of Nazi Germany. Well, in 1918, there's a big crisis. The crisis is that the German submarine threat has been defeated, more or less, but the German army decides to make a bid for victory on the Western Front by launching big offensives, beginning on March 21st, 1918. Over the top, the German armies go to break through, and initially, they score remarkable successes against the British and the French armies. While they defeat and push back the Allied lines. They don't break the Allied will to fight. They don't break through. One reason why they don't break through is Churchill is Minister of Munitions. He's able to supply the British Army and the American Army, as it turns out, with the weapons they need to recover. This is what Lloyd George had to say about Churchill, was that on 21st of March, we lost a lot of equipment to the German offensives but it's entirely due to the tremendous energy of Churchill that not only did we make up for those losses, but in a very short time, the British Army was better equipped than it was before the disaster took place. In other words, A-plus for Churchill as Minister of Munitions during this war. Again, we forget the important role that Churchill is playing in winning the First World War for Britain and the United States, because not only is he arming and equipping the British armed forces, American troops as they go into action, quite often have French and British artillery and weapons at their disposal. The result is the Germans launch an offensive, but they're stopped. The Allies and associated power go on to the counterattack beginning in the summer of 1918. Big offensives on the Western Front, and the German army is defeated on the Western Front. The Americans fighting in the Meuse-Argonne, if you were here last night, you got to see the wonderful film about Sergeant York. The Meuse-Argonne battle, 1,200,000 American soldiers were involved in that battle. About 25,000 Americans were killed during the 47 days of the offensive from September 26 down to November 11, 1918. Very heavy casualties, 95,000 wounded as well in that fight. The British and French armies, too, on the offensive, driving back the Germans. Those tanks start to play an important role. The tanks that the generals were ambivalent about, well, they're playing a very important role, along with artillery and the rest in defeating the German army. Churchill, visiting the front, says, hey, it's admitted by everybody here that the tanks have been a factor, an important factor, in changing the fortune of the war. 
Here you see large numbers of German prisoners being taken by Canadians. Again, the German army morale is broken. The offensives have failed. They're being rolled back on the Western Front. You can see here all these prisoners being rounded up. Haig went to visit one of the Canadian divisions that's taking these prisoners. And this is what Haig uh, recorded in his diary, which is to say many of the Germans surrendered without fighting. Much to the disgust of the Canadian Highlanders, you know, they, they, they don't like to take prisoners. Indeed, one of the grisly aspects of the trench fighting in the First World War is that prisoners were often not taken on both sides. Today, they couldn't help taking prisoners. Why? Because they're giving up, and there's too many of them. Uh, again, a sign of Germany's armies, the ruptured morale of the German army. Meanwhile, Churchill goes to the front, and the French city of Lille is being liberated in October 1918, and they have a march past the British division that has liberated Lille, has a parade through the city for the French citizens and for dignitaries. And Churchill, right there, close to the front, seeing this parade. Do you see this man here? An army major? In the Second World War, he will be known as Field Marshal Montgomery of Alamein. There is a young Montgomery, the British, one of the best British generals of the Second World War, uh, there he is as a major fighting on the Western Front. Again, the experience of the First World War is so important for understanding the experience of the Second World War. Montgomery learned so many lessons. He didn't like the way the generals fought the First World War. One thing about Montgomery as a leader in the Second World War was that he always tried to conserve the lives of his men. You didn't undertake offensives unless you were sure you were going to win and you tried to minimize casualties. Again, Montgomery doesn't want to refight the First World War. Victory, the battlefield, the Germans are being thrown back. This wonderful painting. Dale talked about the exhibit, Gas by John Singer Sargent. What a beautiful painting, and you have an opportunity to see it. Please take advantage of it. It's typically at the Imperial War Museum in, in London. And again, you see soldiers blinded by chemical weapons being led off to uh, stations to be treated for their wounds. Quite often, the, the blind, being blinded was just temporary. Um, uh, Hitler, for example, was gassed at the very end of the war. When the war ended in November 11th, he was in hospital temporarily blinded by the effects of chemical weapons. Uh, again, this magnificent painting you, you should see. Well, what's the result of the war? Well, look at the losses that Britain suffered. Many of these on the Western Front. Over 700,000 Britons are killed in the war. After the war, toward the end of the war, you also have the great influenza pandemic. Again, you can see the horrific loss of life that Britain is suffering at this time. The end of 1918, there's an election in Britain. Lloyd George's, he wants to create a land fit for heroes. That's the motto, that's the cry, the election cry of Lloyd George. There he is, Lloyd George, the prime minister at the end of the war. Well, with Clemenceau, the Prime Minister of France, Woodrow Wilson, President of the United States, they're going, Lloyd George is going to negotiate the peace. Um, Churchill would say about them, here are these three men at the head of the uh, victorious powers. Victory and absolute incomparable in their hands. What would they do with it? Well, here's the answer, the Treaty of Versailles. On June 28, 1919, 
German delegates sitting there at front, hunched over, signing the treaty. There's Wilson, Clemenceau, Lloyd George. Treaty of Versailles, controversial peace treaty, often seen as providing seeds for the next war. There's Woodrow Wilson's signature and Lloyd George's signature on the Treaty of Versailles. Well, at the time, many people already saw that the treaty was flawed, and this is a famous cartoon from uh, 1919. And what you see is the leaders, Lloyd George in the back, Prime Minister of Italy, Orlando, Woodrow Wilson, you see Clemenceau. Clemenceau hears a child crying. Peace treaty has been read by the child. He's crying. 1940 class, it's called. The tiger, that's what Clemenceau was known as, as the tiger. Curious, I seem to hear a child weeping. Again, this cartoonist looking into the future, saying, wow, is this treaty just the basis for another world war? And as it turns out to be, what a prophetic cartoon this is. Because it's in 1940 that France is defeated and Britain is fighting alone. Again, already at the time, people could see that the treaty had some flaws. It, the hope was that the flaws of the treaty could be made up for over time by patient, patient diplomacy. Well, what were Churchill's views at the time? Well, just as the Treaty of Versailles was being signed, he wrote an article in the Weekly Dispatch saying, what should Britain's foreign policy be? First and foremost for Churchill is keep firm friends with the United States. If the peace is going to last, the United States has to stay involved. If the U.S. walks away, then this peace is in trouble. Secondly, try to protect France, which has been so badly weakened by the war. Again, the democracies, France, Britain, the United States, must work together as a league. Thirdly, to accommodate Germany, to secure for them, to win them over, so that they become part of the solution rather than a part of the problem. Again, reaching out to Germany. When the war ended, again, this hunger blockade, Churchill said on the eve of the armistice, he said, the first thing we should do is send several large ships filled with grain, with food, steam them into Hamburg to show the German people that we don't want to be vindictive against them in peacetime. They're hungry, let's feed them. And finally, lastly, destroy what he calls the Bolshevik tyranny, the communist regime that has taken place, taken hold in Russia, and that someday try to overthrow that regime to bring about a truly democratic Russia. Again, I look at this and I say, this is what happens after the Second World War. This is a part of the Cold War settlement. Again, work with France, Germany, reconcile and defeat, the U.S. be involved with Britain, seeing Soviet Russia as being a long-term threat, but work toward the democratization of the Soviet Union. Well, let me conclude with this. This is a very beautiful, wonderful painting that hangs uh, in London at the National Portrait Gallery there, right off of Trafalgar Square. What you see here are the major British politicians of the First World War. You see Lloyd George, you see Asquith, the Prime Minister earlier in the war, Arthur Balfour, the Balfour Declaration. And who's right in the center there, standing underneath the winged victory? Well, it's Churchill. And look at how Churchill is portrayed. Of all the other, of the other political figures, as you see, they're all looking at each other and looking at other things. Churchill is looking at you. He's looking out at the viewer. And look at those wide eyes. 
This is somebody who's far-seeing. James Guthrie, the uh, 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 artist who painted this, has captured something here in Churchill, that of all the political figures, the major political figures in Britain, who were the victors of the First World War, who's the one that's really seeing ahead? Who's the one that sees what's important and how the future is going to unfold? And look at him. He has his head in his hand, somewhat melancholy expression. Nonetheless, what makes Churchill such a great leader is because he could see into the future. And he could see into the future in part because he had read the past. He was very well read in history. And history offered for him guidance about the future. And hence, the importance of this institution, the importance of reading history for helping inform us to make us wiser so that we can do better in the future. Thank you very much. I've been handed some cards here. Um, America's entry into World War I is often called the war's turning point. Wasn't Bulgaria's surrender a more critical and important turning point? It was in many ways. Uh, the defeat of Bulgaria opened up the Balkan front so that Allied armies could move into the Balkans and attack the Central Powers from the south. If the German army hadn't been beaten so badly on the Western Front, that ability of Allied armies to operate out of the Balkans into Central Europe would have been uh, uh, important. But overall, uh, the U.S. entry into the war, the U.S. is an economic superpower at this time. Its economy is larger than that of Germany and Britain combined. The war-making potential of the U.S. is incredible. By the end of the war, by the time of the armistice on November 11, 1918, there are over two million American soldiers in France. The American army in France is larger than the French army. So while the defeat of Bulgaria is important, opening up that southern front, uh, it's uh, the, the, the power that the U.S. is bringing to bear is, is important in, in this regard. Uh, next question. Did Churchill play a key role in women's suffrage as a result of the women, role of women in the war effort? Churchill, before the war, was opposed opposed to giving votes for women. And this brought him into uh, trouble with his wife. Um, uh, his wife, Clementine, believed that, that uh, women should be allowed to, to vote. Uh, Churchill was opposed. In fact, he was attacked on a number of occasions uh, by people who were violent uh, because of his views about votes for, for women. During the war, however, he changed his views about this, in part because of the sacrifice that women had made in uh, the war industries he also realized something after the First World War, that women in Britain tended to be more conservative in outlook and uh, in voting patterns. And as a result, Churchill found that women voted for him. <laughs> and for a politician, uh, you want all the votes you can get. And so as a consequence, Churchill uh, actually, by, after the war, embraced the idea of, of women's suffrage, uh, in part because of the war, but also, I, I, again, a realization that, uh, that uh, he was an attractive enough candidate to women that he could get uh, their vote. What did Churchill think of President Wilson's leadership? Oh, that's a wonderful question and a, a hard question. Wilson did not like Churchill. 
Uh, I already talked for too long, but I, I can show you all sorts of things that Wilson said about Churchill. He, he did not like Churchill. He saw Churchill as an imperialist. He saw Churchill as an obstacle. He saw Churchill as uh, standing in the way of trying to mediate a peace earlier in the war. And then afterwards, after the war, because of Churchill's anti-communist, anti-Bolshevik views, uh, Wilson thought, oh boy, this man's a warmonger. We just fought and defeated Germany, and now he wants to start a war with Russia. So uh, Wilson was not, not, at, not at all happy with, uh, with, with, with Churchill. Uh, they, they didn't get along. Uh, they met several times in London and in Paris. Uh, they, they talked past each other. Uh, again, not, um, uh, they didn't get along. Now, what did Churchill think of Wilson as a war leader? On one hand, he, he um, didn't like the fact that Wilson took too long to get the U.S. into the war. Uh, Wilson, unlike FDR, lagged behind public opinion. I, I want to try to be clear on this. During the period of the First World War, Germany had been so provocative in so many ways that the American people were more geared and ready for war than Wilson was. Wilson sort of was behind American public opinion. If he had not asked for a declaration of war in April of 1917, the Congress might have acted on its own. Uh, the American people were outraged by the German submarine offensive and also the Zimmerman Telegraph revelation that Germany was trying to make an alliance with Mexico and that Mexico would get back territories that, that the U.S. had taken from the Mexican War. So Churchill didn't like the fact that Wilson seemed to be holding back the U.S. from entering the war rather than leading America into the war. Now, in the Second World War, Roosevelt has a different situation. The American public wants to stay out of the war. They don't want to see Germany and Japan win. The opinion polls are very clear on this. The American people are aware of the danger of Nazi Germany. They just don't want to fight Nazi Germany. They hope somebody else can beat Nazi Germany. And so FDR has to... He's leading the American public rather than being pushed by the American uh, uh, public. So in one sense, Churchill is critical of Wilson's views. After the war, he thought that Wilson was somewhat naive with the League of Nations, that uh, he didn't understand some of the realities of power that were going to be important for maintaining the peace, that Germany would have to be kept in its box. So uh, Churchill was critical in many ways of, of Wilson both during the war and then after uh, the war. Having said that, he admired Wilson as a great speaker. Wilson was perhaps one of the best stage presence in his ability to, to speak to the American people. So he was a great communicator in, the, in that regard, and, and Churchill did admire that. Is there any validity to the charge that, Germany, uh, that Churchill wanted Germany to sink the Lusitania in 1915 to bring America into the war? Another really good question. In 1915, the Lusitania is sunk. Uh, uh, there's a number of good books that have been written ab about what happened there. Uh, Churchill certainly wanted to see the U.S. ensnared in the war, in both world wars, because he believed that the U.S. would be decisive in determining the outcome. There was well known that there were German submarines operating off the southern coast of, of Ireland. Uh, the skipper... Uh, of the Lusitania had been warned about this. The best defense against submarines, because submarines, when they're submerged, don't have much mobility, is to steam at a high rate of speed, something that the Lusitania could do, and zigzag. If you zigzag, and you were basically um, safe from German submarine attack. 
The skipper of the Lusitania, unfortunately, didn't do that. He went at a slower speed than he ought to have, and he didn't zigzag. He made himself quite a target for the Germans. Uh, there's a whole bunch of conspiracy theories out there that say, oh, Churchill wanted this to happen. No, he didn't want the Lusitania. Lusitania was a valuable asset. It's a large passenger ship, over 40,000. can be used as a troop ship, a hospital ship. Uh, it's a big investment. You don't want to see that, that lost. <clears throat> what happens is that people say, oh, it enraged American opinion, and it did. So therefore, Churchill wanted to happen. No, he didn't want it to happen, but he did want American opinion to be enraged. So you follow me on all of this? I mean, there's, there's no conspiracy uh, here. This, this is a case where a great deal of the blame, in fact, the Admiralty Inquiry afterwards blamed the captain overwhelmingly for what, what happened. I, 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 again, people who don't like Churchill who say, no, it's all part of a big cover-up, uh, you know, blame the skipper rather than blame the Admiralty. Um, um, I, I, don't, I don't follow that line of, of, of argument. Now, it was the case, the sinking of the Lusitania really does enrage American opinion. Theodore Roosevelt, in particular, sees this as a barbaric act, an act of piracy, he said. And the way you deal with pirates is go after them. So Theodore Roosevelt is leading the charge for the U.S. to enter into the war at this time. Wilson, however, uses the Lusitania and other episodes of ships being sunk to force the Germans to moderate their submarine offensive from 1915 around to 1917. So uh, Churchill was blamed for the Dardanelles disaster, but wasn't his stratagem correct and the cause of the failure a timid admiral? I believe this was John Keegan's view, the late British military historian John Keegan, and uh, that, that is correct. Uh, the failure at the Dardanelles, there's a lot of blame to go around uh, about what happens there in 1915. Part of it is timid admirals, generals that, uh, that uh, are uh, uh, not the best tacticians on the British side. But the terrain is also bad. The straits are hard to force, gun batteries, mines. It's a very difficult problem. And the Turkish soldiers fighting on the other side for the Ottoman Empire, they're fighting for their capital. They put up a really tough resistance. Again, we tend to think, oh, why did the attack fail? Oh, it failed because we did something wrong. You have to remember, on the other side, you had a very determined adversary who was quite competent at what they were doing in defending both the Dardanelles, the Straits, as well as the Gallipoli Peninsula. So uh, this is a very, very tough operational military problem to be uh, successful. So. Um, uh, there's a lot of blame to go around, but I think you also have to take note that the Turkish soldiers fighting to defend their capital play a key role in uh, beating back this, uh, this assault. Um, when you look at it, if the British had organized themselves better, had more aggressive leaders, this campaign should have succeeded. That's my view of this. It should have succeeded. And I think it would have had big, big strategic benefit if it had succeeded. So it was feasible in the sense that it could be carried out. And unfortunately, the British leadership there, both Army and Navy, weren't up to the task uh, at the time. But also, don't forget the, the Turkish defense. One more. How well did Britain uh, and France uh, recover in a military and infrastructure sense from World War I? Did that recovery process or lack thereof impact their ability to defend Germany, uh, themselves against Germany in World War II. Uh, I, I would highlight that, yes, there's a great deal of loss of life in Britain and France, uh, as well as in Germany. 
The main impact, though, of the war is not necessarily material, though that is important. I mean, you can't have over 700,000 of your people killed without having uh, a negative impact on your economy. Uh, I don't want to sound too clinical, but obviously it has a big impact on Britain's material strength, France's material strength. But there's another dimension to it. It's not just about economics. It's not just about material strength. It's also about psychology. After the First World War, having seen the horrors of war, the heavy loss of life that occurred, British and French politicians are of the mindset of never again. We cannot do this again. If there is another great war, it will mean the end of civilization. And so they look at things in apocalyptic terms, and this disarms them. Britain and France could have armed and prepared themselves better to stand up to Nazi Germany, and they should have. Uh, the leaders of the time are indicted, and I think rightly so in many ways. But to put, themselves, put ourselves in their shoes, you have to remember that they are trying to prevent the last war. They're trying to prevent the war of the future. They want to prevent a war that they know will be horrible. The technology has caught up. The fighting won't just be on a Western front somewhere, a band of battleground. In the next war, the war will also be bombers coming over, bombing cities, civilians being killed. It's important to remember that from August 1940 down to December 1940, the 25,000 British civilians were killed in the German bombing attacks on the um, uh, British homeland. I, I, again, horrendous loss of life. And so politicians in France and Britain are, what can we do to avoid that? Unfortunately, unfortunately, they were dealing in Adolf Hitler with someone who was not going to be deterred from having another world war. And they didn't recognize that until too late. When they did recognize it, they did their best to fight against it. But unfortunately, there was a lag there in their perception. And that's the tragedy of the interwar period. The psychological wounds, scars, that prevented the leaders of Britain and France, and for that matter, the United States, and their populations from doing things in a timely way to prevent the next great Armageddon. Thank you very much. John Maurer, thank you so much. Our last program of the season, but we do have a collaborative program series with Bryant Park this summer, so check our website. And if you're not on our mailing list, sign up. You'll get a brochure. Our programs will be online for ticket sales in late August. Have a great summer, everyone, and thank you very much.